Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. So welcome to episode 15 of Middle Brow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gane. Hi, my name is Warren E. Buffett, an American business magnate, investor, and philanthropist. See, I know I'm that's the false. most successful investor in the world. I believe strongly in giving while living, and I have one idea that never changed in my mind, that you should use your wealth to help people, and I've decided to give $1,500,000, United dollars to randomly selected individuals worldwide. On receipt of this email, you should count yourself as the lucky individual. Your email address was chosen online while searching at random. Kindly get back to me at your earliest convenience before I travel to Japan for my treatment, so I know your email address is valid. <laughs> Warren E. Buffett 761 at gmail.com. Email me. Thank you for accepting our offer. You are indeed grateful. You can Google my name for more information. Warren Buffett or visit my website, www.wikipedia.org slash Warren Buffett. Is this, God bless you. Best regard, <laughs> Mr. Warren E. Buffett, billionaire investor. Is this Warren Buffett spam? This is, uh, I, who can say if it's spam? I, Gmail seemed to think it was. Sure. I like to think that Warren Buffett is reaching out to me and uh, has a <laughs> great opportunity for me to get rich, Derek. So this is like my last episode of the podcast. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> yeah. I do. I wanted to see this whole thing out, but I, uh, I got in that get rich quick scheme. Uh, and it's going to happen for me. So, all right. Well, um, well, we 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 wish you. Well, I don't know. I'm talking about we. This is a two person operation. I, I wish you. <laughs> I wish you the very best in your future endeavors. And uh, know that we'll leave the door open if things for some reason don't pan out. I can't see how it would. I don't know why they they would. This is bulletproof. I mean, the one thing that looks a little strange is that uh, the actual email address this is from is not Warren Buffett zero seven six one at gmail dot com. It's actually from Warney Buffet. Uh, dash at minos.ocn.ne.jp. So, oh, yeah, who can say? Of the Nebraska buffets. I know them well. Ah, uh, man. Do people still fall like uh, uh, this? I guess this is the tangent part of the episode. Someone has to fall for it, right? Because otherwise they wouldn't keep sending them out. I guess. I, but I think it may just be like how many of these are sent out. It's got to be like tens of thousands. Certainly. And maybe like 10 of them get responded to a year. Ah. <sighs> But I mean, like, this is a completely free grift. Uh, I mean, not that it's a grift. This is like real life. But sure. like, if it were a grift, this would be a very easy one to fake and a very easy one to get an old person with for a couple hundred dollars. Have you ever have you ever fallen victim to a scam, Derek? Have I ever? Um, I got to no, but I do have a semi-related kind of funny story. When I was like 16 years old, I was walking... Uh, in Ottawa, Ontario, our nation's capital, well, my nation's capital, yeah, and nice. I was uh, I was accosted by, I forget if it was PETA or Greenpeace or some organization. They were like canvassing and getting numbers and stuff like that for memberships and whatnot. And I got accosted by somebody, and in a moment of panic because I didn't <laughs> want to be rude, I gave my stepfather's name and phone number. <laughs> now, nice, here, good one, good now, plan. Here's the thing. Weeks later, I fielded the phone call from the group and said there must have been a mistake. And it was the most powerful move I had done in my entire young life at that point. That's was it accidental that you happened to feel the phone call? Or? Yeah, completely. I, I was I was home from school. It just so happens that I fielded the call, and I, I felt like a complete G, even if it was completely random and very unlikely. Well, I'm very happy for you, Derek, that you were able to uh, have that moment of power as a child, <laughs> and uh, it's led you to where you are today. Yes, that was a that was a sliding doors moment. Two sliding doors moments in my life. Uh, once, uh, when I was 16, when I fielded my own phone call from a group I didn't want to didn't want anything to do with, and once when I was nine, when I refused that my grandfather teach me how to play guitar. The two defining parts of my life. <laughs> And now that's why you're on a podcast. It's like really giving it to Andre Tarkovsky, putting him in his place where he deserves to be. 
I don't think he deserves to be 190th with this movie, but we'll get to that. We'll what, get there. First of all, who the hell are you, and what oh, are I'm you Isabel, doing on the podcast? I'm Isabel Arf. I read things that make Derek like go off on tangents, and that's pretty much my whole purpose here. Uh, sometimes I say things about movies, but, you know. Occasionally. I, I don't want to, like, be too full of myself in that situation. Middle I know I know what I'm here for. <laughs> Middle brow madness. Uh, the, our show is very basic. Well, our show... Okay, wait a minute. I am basic. The show is not basic. Our show is very simple. Correct words are important. Uh, what we have here is a 256-movie single elimination bracket. Which movies, you may ask? The top 250 movies of all time, according to the Internet Movie Database, circa August of last year. So, Captain Marvel is not on this list. Detective Pikachu is not on this list. Um... I'm going to go see Detective Pikachu it, this weekend. It's a great film. It's a great capital G, well, like maybe not capital G, lowercase g, great film. But is it a capital G good movie? Oh, certainly. A capital G good movie. And there's there's some shit that happens in Detective Pikachu that I feel like I, I really want you to see it so we can talk about it. Um, I also want you to see Serenity, too. So there's a lot of movies with spoilers this year that I've seen that Derek hasn't seen, and I... I'm very mad that I can't talk to him about it. I've not seen Glass. I've not seen Us. I've not seen... I haven't seen most movies this year because I'm way behind. I'm doing this the, fucking the, show. The important one is Serenity. Everyone should watch Serenity, the uh, Matthew McConaughey flick from this year. It's uh, better than anything else in the IMDb Top 250. I don't that, think that's actually true. I don't think I'd stand by that. <laughs> that's like, I would I, probably... That's, yeah, that seems, that seems outsized even by, by your metrics. But it is a five-star film. Um, which is more than I can say than anything else we're talking about today. Uh, yeah, I think I would agree. What a weird thing to say on a podcast. <laughs> um, uh, so what do we do here? What we, is this podcast about? Single elimination bracket, baby. It's a tournament. We decide which, uh, all the movies are paired up. And through the bulletproof method of the single elimination bracket, we figure out which movie is the best movie of all time, asterisk. And so far we are, uh, 38 matchups. Uh, we're, we're up to, well, not 38. I did my math wrong. 28. We're 28 matchups in. Uh, no, we're 28. Yeah, 28 matchups in, which means we have 56 movies that we've covered already. So we've, we're, we're getting to a quarter way through up the bracket. And, uh, these are the two matchups that we're going to be covering today. The Dark Knight Rises versus Andre Rublev and Wally versus The Truman Show. Uh, I had a nice time with all of these movies, actually. Hmm. Uh, okay, I, I, I had slightly less of a good time with one of these, but... I had slightly less of a good time with two of these, but I mean, we'll get to that when it... Uh, although I had a surprisingly good time with one of them. Yes, say, say, same this here. This is foreshadowing for our own episode that's going to be revealed in like two seconds. Alright, so let's just hop right into it. Uh, our first matchup of the day, the 67th seed, the favorite. The 67th best movie of all time, Isabel. The Dark Knight Rises. Directed by Christopher Nolan, released in 2012, starring fucking everybody, but mostly Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Gary Oldman, Anne Hathaway, Mario Cotillard, Tom Hardy, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Morgan Freeman. It did pretty well at the box office, you could say. It is one of the it is breathing rarefied air, and that is one of the few movies to have grossed one billion dollars all time. Jesus Christ. Off a, uh, Wikipedia tells me 250 to 300 million dollar budget. Who knows? Who's to say how much money this costs? Versus Andre Rublev, uh, released in 1969, uh, directed by Andre Tarkovsky, starring Anatoly Solonitsyn, Ivan Lapiku, Nikolai Grinko, uh, winner of the 1969, uh, Fipresky Prize. And uh, was not able to compete for the Palma d'Or at Cannes that year because of those wily Soviets. Well, the government specifically. Like, citizens probably didn't had an opinion or not, but the government was like, yeah, I don't know about that. No, I think we should have all of our opinions laid out about the Soviet Union on this episode. <laughs> I think that that's a good use of all of our time and not at all a waste. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Who, who wants to listen to us talk about the Soviet Union? Seriously. Derek, how do you feel about the science of Marxism-Leninism? Oh, God. <laughs> Where do you think it went wrong? Here's the great leftist question. Where did the Soviet Union go wrong? No matter what answer you give, it's probably incorrect. I want to say authoritarianism is where it went wrong. <laughs> I don't want to be so bold, Derek. No, no. Let's, I feel like if we get into a serious discussion of oh, how I boy. actually feel about the Soviet Union, this will be way too, like... 
I don't have the material for that, Isabel. <laughs> I didn't prepare for that. I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. I did, I just read Lenin. I get to I get to talk about everything I just read and how Lenin doesn't know fucking shit about anarchy. Like, <laughs> sorry, all like the Leninites out there, like uh, all the tankies that listen to this podcast. I guess we'll be, uh, we'll we'll get to talking about people who are wrong about anarchism in very short order because we're going to start talking about uh, our first movie that we're covering might be the most ideologically muddled movie that we've covered on this show so far: The Dark Knight Rises, third in a trilogy. Directed by Christopher Nolan. Now, I don't even know where to fucking start with this. Uh, how, did you see this in theaters? I saw this in theaters, and it was... I saw this in theaters. It was disappointing. <laughs> yeah. I think, like, that's the that's the key word with The Dark Knight Rises, is everyone loves Dark Knight, obviously. Most sure. people love Batman Begins. Good movie. Uh, but The Dark Knight Rises has a, a less... A less... A more checkered past, let's say. Sure. Like... Uh, after Dark Knight, uh, co-writer, director Christopher Nolan, uh, someone we've anointed with the title of Greatest Living Metal Bra film, uh, Filmmaker, uh, was not that interested in making another one of these. No, like, but th- they gave him a lot of money. They gave him a shitload of money, and I really blame him for taking that check. And they said, and, hey, you can make fucking Interstellar next if you want. <sighs> and Which, inter- a great film. Good movie. Uh, that, that I also saw in theaters and wept my fucking balls off. <laughs> Interstellar is not on the top 250, is it? No, it is not, sadly, because people don't have any taste. Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, you gotta give gotta give the people a little credit. They did get Andre Rublev on, onto this fucking bracket. Um, so, The Dark Knight Rises, this is the Bane one. And um, so, what's the plot of this fucking thing? Um, the Bane of the series existence? Something uh, like that? What like <sighs> is that a joke? Does that count as a joke? I think that counts as a joke. I'm just really like in earnest trying to think of like what the worst Batman thing is in general. Like in, in general, history? like maybe like maybe maybe movies. I don't know. I don't know. Fuck all about the comics or really the TV shows, like animated or or otherwise. But I think this is this has got to be uh, up there because this is kind of like a bloated, distended, just muddled lumbering object it's like it it, it looks like a movie sometimes it's it's genuinely incoherent which is very incoherent (laughs) which is not something i would really i didn't expect to say quite that much when we came into this when uh i originally rated this i think three and a half or four stars but uh, on rewatch i definitely dumped that down and or bumped that down and the thing i was constantly wondering is what is what am i supposed to be getting from this film. And I don't think the film even knows what it's trying to get because parts of it are clearly anti like wealth, uh, wealth acquisition and anti, um, rich people, essentially. All the Catwoman um, stuff is anti rich people. Yes. All, all but then the Bane stuff. All the Bane stuff is anti poor people. <laughs> but like disguised and, and, as like. And, and anti redistributive justice. It's like. It's it's right. The Bane stuff is like right wing populism that uses the vocabulary of liberation and um, and uh, emancipation from your chains and from your lot. And the city is yours. Everything is back to you while actually being authoritarian and this and that and the other thing. And then there's the whole Robin stuff, which is kind of more of a Batman Begins flavored, just straight up detective movie. And more of a like, hey, cops, right? Cops rule. Also, yes, cops rule. <laughs> That's kind of the thesis. If there, if it's the most one thesis, it's that cops rule. Yes, and uh, and poor people rule. You know what's awesome? A Law and Order, <laughs> by any means necessary. Good show. Uh, God, um, I haven't seen an episode of Law and Order in ages. Yeah, there's a lot of strands here. It's like it feels like okay, we're doing one more of these, but we have to do all of this. Which and, put everything I had in this movie. Yes. Yeah, so you've got. Uh, so you've got all all your favorites coming back. You've got Christian Bale, who I feel does some of his best work in the trilogy in this movie as an actor. Yes, yes certainly. Uh, and Michael Caine doing some of his worst work in the trilogy. Uh, there's a lot of people. This movie's got a deep bench, and it's got a lot of people just, like, slumming it. Like, Mario Cotillard won a fucking Oscar, and she has probably the most laughable death scene I've seen in a major motion picture. It's very bad. And also, it ties in with, like, ideological incoherency. Whereas, like, she the, the twist, if you haven't seen the movie, like, just, I guess you can watch Spoilers. it. Spoilers. 
I guess. Spoilers. Um, she ends up being the actual bad guy behind Bane. Yes. But she's rich. Bane is theoretically not. They both grew up poor in a prison that's in the bottom of a well, I guess. Yeah, somewhere in Africa. In the Middle East, I would say. Like, it's supposed to be vaguely Middle Eastern. Yeah, like, I guess, like, yeah, vaguely Middle Eastern. Maybe, maybe like, North Africa, somewhere over there is what <laughs> and, we, are, we are to understand. And I think that it's, like, that, that whole uh, concept points to one of the strange things about this film, which is that... It wants to be real, and it wants to be like, this is this is a real Batman. This takes place in the real world, known as superpowers, X, Y, and Z. Except that premise would almost work in a comic book. It would still be kind of racist in a comic book, but yeah. it would like it fits with the tone. Whereas in this movie, it seems like you took something from Aladdin and just threw it in here <laughs> for no reason. Ra's al Ghul, not the most enlightened char- comic character. Let's just put it that no. way. Um, yeah, uh, if I, I mean, Tom Hardy... God love him. I mean, I really like Tom Hardy as an actor. He does his damnedest. He's ADR to hell, and not in the cool, like, spaghetti western way. It just sounds bad. You can tell that, like, they had a different voice at first, and people were like, I can't understand what the fuck he's saying. So they redid the whole voice. Yeah, Tom Hardy made Tom Hardy probably made a choice that the editor did not like. <laughs> so he made a different choice. So he made a different they're, choice. They're strong choices. Um, they're not necessarily good choices, but I like that someone in this film is making strong choices. In something like The Dark Knight or Batman Begins, there's sure. a central plot that you can see from A to like B where it, how it gets there. Whereas in this, if you start at A and you end up where it ends up, I don't really know how it got there. And I feel like the movie doesn't know how it gets there either. Like, there, like there's, a, there's a fucking neutron bomb in a truck for half an hour, for fuck's sake. I mean, uh, this movie is goofy as shit. Like... If I were to just read the plot, it's goofy as all get out. This reads like a season of the old, of like the Adam West Batman, because you've got like fucking Catwoman quipping it up. And this, the incoherence is not just the politics, it's everything. I mean, like you have a supervillain coming out of the sewer, stealing a neutron bomb and cutting an island of a city off from the rest of the city. That's a silly premise in any way you cut it. But also, it also makes me think, like, wait, so if it's under the island, was he just in the sewers underneath this island, or was he also on the mainland? There's a lot of things that, like, I don't like harping on plot points. Sure. uh, They're, like, not really that important to me. But sometimes in a film, they become so obvious and so glaring that you can't help but think, what were you – what was the actual explanation for this? Like, how does Batman get back to Gotham from the Middle East and no one knows he did it? Like, but this is – this wouldn't be so so much of a big – uh, issue if because here's the thing here's the thing with Christopher Nolan and this is this is like this is his Achilles heel he's not what I would call a memorable image maker like he has memorable images but he doles them out few and far between this movie has one and it's at the end where Batman takes his batcopter or whatever and just flies out to the bay flies over fucking Hudson Bay or wherever the fuck it's supposed to be and lets that sucker detonate. And there's like, it's just sky, sea, and a mushroom cloud. Great image. But this is like, like the the lasting image is just like how all the cops and how all of Batman stuff is like just super like teched out, all murdered out. And nothing in this movie really sticks. I mean, let's be totally blunt. Like the end of this movie is basically a bunch of militarized cops fighting what looks like a horde of like people and they're the heroes yeah and this movie i mean this was right in the like the this was during like no this is obviously a little bit after after occupy but it's clearly influenced by occupy wall street i think like it's weirdly resonant now in a way that it shouldn't be where like now i don't really want to see a bunch of militarized police running in like formation at a bunch of people who look like they're unequipped to deal with it yeah, a I don't know people. if I ever wanted to watch that, but now that it's like something that I see in the news like every single day, I want to see it even less. Well, it's in the, it, like this. These images are kind of in the the um, the the pop culture vernacular, you know. Like you can tell a lot by a society by its blockbusters, and this does not reflect on America. <laughs> no, I mean I don't think any of the Dark Knight movies do. I think that like as much as I I think that. 
I mean, we'll definitely talk about the original Dark Knight, which I think is a, still a genuinely great movie. Yeah. But just like Die Hard, where Die Hard is an inherently conservative film, sure. so is the Dark Knight itself is an inherently conservative film. And I think this film pushes that even farther than like the fucking Patriot Act that happens in the original Dark Knight. Yeah, because what happens in this? We're probably way over time for this, but like there, like the whole revolution that happens is like a right wing nightmare. It's like literally poor people are going to take our stuff. Yes, they're going to kick us out of our homes and just take our jewels and cars and shit. And then what? Anarchy. And this movie gets a lot of things wrong, but it gets that especially wrong. Certainly, and I think like there's moments of it trying to deflate that slightly or not make it seem as right-wing as it is through Catwoman, I think is like the voice of like the people, quote unquote. Sure. She's like, like you have all this money and like you don't give it to anybody. Like I'm at least giving it to like people who need it or like protecting people who need it. And that's made toothless by the actual way the movie functions where basically it says if a, if Manhattan or something, it's a Manhattan, the one Island or that's all Long Island, isn't it? My New York geography is dog shit. Uh, so whichever New York island is on an island, oh, not, neither of us know because I guess we're just terrible at everything, but, um, sure. whichever one is, is separated, if it were separated from the rest of New York City, Here's one. Montreal that, Island is separate from everything. Sure. If it was totally separated and there was no way to get back and forth, that it would just descend into violence in the streets and looting and people killing each other. And that the only thing that is protecting the city is the concept of law as provided by an active police force. The Dark Knight Rises is kind of the blockbuster equivalent of those commercials you see on, like, the Weather Channel for, like, tactical cameras <laughs> to catch your nanny spying on you or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Or, like, if you're if you're worried that your maid steals your jewels because you're exactly. some fucking weird racist, then this <laughs> is your movie. Uh, so, um, how about we talk about a better movie, Isabel? Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk let's, about a movie that I actually liked. Let's talk about Andrei Rublev, which was the, um, the, the second movie by Andrei Tarkovsky, uh, carved from an earlier, uh, from an earlier work. Uh, it's kind of ambiguous to me whether or not it was actually released in that form called, uh, what was it? Uh, the Passion According to Andre or something, yes. uh, something similar to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cut that I watched, the cut that was on the Criterion channel was the, uh, director's cut, which was three hours and change long. Same. That's the same one I watched. Okay, good. So. I, I want to start off with a, uh, with a mea culpa, maybe. A mea culpa? Yeah, because, uh, last episode, I think it was when we were signing off, uh, we, I mentioned that I think Solaris is too slow to really get the IMDb <laughs> crowd interested in things. And Andre Rublev was uh, more normal and more like it's, it's, I, I didn't, I don't know if I said the word normie, but I think if I was, oh, you 100% as, did. as the normie Andre Tarkovsky movie. And, uh, I was wrong. <laughs> Apparently I remember this movie completely different from what it actually is like. A, I forgot it was three hours and change long. B, I forgot that most of the movie is people looking sad and standing around with long camera shots. And I yeah. don't mean that insultingly for what it's worth. Yeah, this is a this is a this is a wide lens movie. You can tell that just love yeah, lovingly framed sad people with the uh, with the edges of the frame just like looping. Not looping, but like, you know, like like a wide angle lens does. Mm-hmm. Um so, uh, Andre Rublev, an actual person, an actual 15th century painter of idols of note. Um, and this is three hours of, uh, how to say? It's Scenes three from ho- his life. It's, yeah, it's basically, it's, this is functionally a biopic, but, uh, it's split into, uh, was it seven episodes? That sounds correct, yeah. Yes. And, uh, each episode uh, taking on, uh, a, a small facet of his life and work, uh, a lot of it involving uh, struggles with art itself, uh, creative problems, uh, artist's block, and troubles of faith, uh, trying to negotiate one's faith with one's uh, with one's work. Uh, real quick, it is actually eight episodes plus the prologue and epilogue. There you go. Um, the, the prologue involving uh, a man with a makeshift uh, hot air balloon and an epilogue with horses, which I'm led to believe Tarkovsky uh, thought of as a symbol uh, for, for, for the spark of life, which is why they keep showing up in this movie. Yeah, and I think it points to one of the strengths of this movie, which is associative meaning and not necessarily direct meaning. Sure. Because there's, is he never explains, oh, this is what horses mean to me, or there's not ever really a horse that's super integral to the plot, let's say. 
No. But these this images of horses reoccurs routinely and it's presented in different ways every time. And the final actual scene of the movie, like the final shot, is this horses standing by a river while it rains. Tarkovsky, ever the elemental filmmaker, uh, lots of – so yeah, water, water everywhere, much of it symbolizing life. And, uh, uh, you know, because uh, water is a recurring motif in Stalker. Uh, it's a recurring motif in – I. no, it's not a recurring motif in The Sacrifice. The Sacrifice, I think, is one of his air movies. But it is a recurring motif in Solaris as well. It is. That's true. Uh, there's actually a, a couple shots in here, and there's some of my favorite shots in the film where uh, he just shoots a running river uh, as it like runs its course, mm-hmm. uh, and what like really delves into like the water itself, and you see things kind of swimming in it. Like there's an early scene where some milk gets dumped into it. Yeah, and I you it was watch. Like, yeah, yeah, and that's beautiful. And you watch like the milk kind of pour out and go down the river, and then a later scene also focused on a river, which is also it's um, a there's a parallel image in Solaris of a river where there's a bunch of like a, a reeds or grass in it. And you're seeing the grass and the reeds kind of flow over each other as like the river runs through it. I think that that speaks to some of his greatest strengths as a filmmaker, which is a maker of images. This film is not hurting for images. No, um, he is the anti Nolan in that way. Almost. Uh, it's a <laughs> film of images and which makes sense for uh, being a film about an, uh, the painter of, of icons. This movie and it only really uh, locked uh, – this only really locked in whenever uh, the ending montage of uh, – so this so the movie takes place over uh, over the course of uh, Rublev's life, uh, culminating with an extended, very patient, very ballsy 10-minute montage of uh, Andrei Rublev's surviving work in bold color. So by the end, I was struck by a very pervasive feeling of what – it's not quite Sonder – but it's close. Sonder being the feeling of realization whenever you're like out on the street or otherwise surrounded by strangers and realizing that they themselves are living uh, a life as complex and as deep in meaning and as deep in feeling surrounded by friends and family as much as you are, however fleeting that might be. Now, this struck me here for just objects like stuff, art specifically in this case, but also just anything like manufactured. Like, anything that I can, like, lay my eyes on, someone made. Like, there's a whole process behind that. And a lot of it is old and survives. And we can almost touch moments of the past through the surviving relics of it. Yes. And I think that that's the reason that um, uh, the final sequence, the bell, is actually my favorite sequence of the uh, piece. Which uh, Andre actually isn't in super much, uh, but it focuses a lot on uh, Boriska who's a young son of a bellmaker, everyone around him basically died. And uh, this prince, I don't want to get into like anything deeper than like the plot for this, but the prince is basically like, hey, make make a bell. And he, he's like, I know how to make a bell. My father taught me how to make a bell. I'm going to make the best bell possible. You have to do whatever I say. And you can tell the entire time he's like, I don't know how to make a fucking bell. I, he, my father never taught me this. He doesn't say this until the end, but it's clearly implied um, throughout with the way he responds to things with the stress that's put on him. And he knows if he doesn't accomplish his task, him and the people who uh, are helping him will be killed. And you are essentially just watching the creation process occur and watching this person who is thinking, I need this to work, but I don't know if it's going to. I don't know if the thing that I make is going to be worthwhile or is going to effectively do what I need it to do. And is that then, the mercy of his instincts? Yes. And then finally, at the end, when the bell finally... I, I was genuinely didn't know whether the bell was going to actually ring or not because that's the it's question just, the entire time it's a very thrilling little little piece of suspense because you see them slowly start to like uh get the what is the thing in the bell called the that strikes the bell i'm not sure that's a good thing let me look that up it is the bead line the or bead. no 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 it's the clapper <laughs> the clapper yes that makes i recognize that's right but they're preparing the clapper to hit the side of the bell to see if it'll ring and they're slowly moving it back and forth because it's, it's a giant bell and it's super it's heavy. heavy. Shit. And there, there's so much tension in those moments. It's It feels almost like the longest part of the movie, even though it's, for the rest of the film, an incredibly short sequence. Yeah, it's like 30 seconds. Yeah. And finally it hits and you hear the bell and like all the tension falls out of you. And then... It just breaks down. Yeah, Bariska breaks down and like uh, later Andre finds him and finally breaks his own vow of silence and is like, hey... Let's go together. You're going to make bells. I'm going to paint icons and let's let's leave here. 
And that's kind of like his his final moment of becoming. Like Andre Rublev's own moment of becoming who he was going to be is becoming this person who would create this art that we eventually come to see. And it's like the entire film becomes its own version of this last piece of the film. It's like sure. it's like the film is exists within itself. And then we see the icons at the end and it's wrapping it all around together. It's a, also, which was really interesting with this, uh, two things. One, uh, thick with action sequences. Which I, I also forgot for some reason. But which, there, there's uh, which, an, an incredibly long battle sequence where a lot of shit happens. Yeah, it's very, uh, there's a, yeah, it's a rife with incident. I, I don't know if I would call it and, choreographed, but there's a lot of shit happening. And it's pretty brutal, too. It is pretty brutal. And um, although one thing, I mean, if we're going to like talk shit about this movie, you made the point in the Slack about this movie is scored weird. Yeah, it, like the. Go ahead. I think I think it's it's clear to tell that um, even though it, I think if it was not Tarkovsky that made this, I think we'd be able to say this is like one of the best films a director made. Like I would, any, any film, any director would be proud to say that this is their best film. But Tarkovsky hadn't fully found himself yet. I don't feel when you're watching this. Um, like it's a second film and you can see his visual styles mostly there. Um, later he would do a lot of amazing things with color photography as well, but mm -hmm. certainly like his long takes, the slowness of his films, the, uh, the dramatic structure as well, but the actual music, um, it's very conventional at points and it makes, it's like feeding you the feelings where the rest of the film is not feeding you that. I mean that works. Th that works like at the end during the uh, during the art montage. Mm -hmm. Not so much earlier in the film, um, but also the uh, Tarkovsky uh, Tarkovsky's uh, sound design, which is especially excellent in Stalker, is not here yet. Yes, it, it's there's no there's no there there quite yet. Not quite yet. Still. Uh, I'm going to assume that we're uh, that our 20 minutes for these two movies are up. Yes, and I'm going to go ahead and assume that Andre Rublev will be moving on. The only way I think it wouldn't is if uh, Dark Knight was way shorter, so I would have had to watch a shorter movie when we circle back around. But Dark Knight's almost fucking three hours long, anyways. So all oh, these movies are fucking three hours long. Yeah. So thank thankfully the next two are both under an hour forty. Yes, um, but yes, congratulations, Andre Rublev. Uh, Andre Rublev, you get to move on. And you will face the winner of this matchup. And I feel like we're going to fight. Andy Ruby. <laughs> Wait, is what? Andy, and, and, I said Andy Ruby. What the okay. hell is Andy Ruby? Like Andre Rublev, like Andy Ruby. Oh, Andy Ruby. Okay, I thought you were mispronouncing Andy Rooney. <laughs> I mean, I was I was literally about to ask you, is Andre, Andre, I was going to say Andre Rooney. Is Andre Rooney dead? Um, Andy Rooney's definitely dead. He's 100% dead. Good riddance. I don't, we're going to cut that part out. I don't know if, actually, no, he's said some really shitty things. He's uh, said some super racist and homophobic stuff. So I don't know. Fuck me, Andy Rooney. Who cares? Which, okay, wait a minute. He, he, he lived, he lived a whole life. He was 92 when he died. He can fuck off. Is he the 60 Minutes guy or is he the yellow face guy from Breakfast at Tiffany's? Uh, both, right? I thought one of them was Andy and the other one was Mickey. You're right. Mickey Rooney is yellow face guy. 60 Minutes guy is Andy. Okay. Um, but. <laughs> Glad we got that sorted out. Uh, he's he's not a fan of uh, gay people or black people or Native American people, so like, who cares? God, moving on <laughs> to our second matchup today. Take that, Jesus. Andy Rooney. God, talk about kicking a guy when he's down. Uh, but anyways, uh, what are we talking about? Movies? We're okay, yeah, still movies. Our next matchup, the favorite going in, the sixty-two seed, Wall E. Directed by Andrew Stanton, released in 2008, starring Brent Burt, Elisa Kitten. God, the attack of the bad handwriting again. God. Elisa Knight. Were you, were you going to say Knight? Because I, I wrote K I N. So. <laughs> um, but Ben Burt, Elisa Knight, Jeff Garland, and Fred Willard are the big ones. Yeah, those are the big four that I have written down. Uh, big hit, $533 million take on a $180 million budget. One for six at the Academy Awards, winning for Best Animated Feature. Versus The Truman Show, directed by Peter Weir, released in 1998, starring Jim Carrey, Laura Linney, Noah, uh, Noah Emmerich, Natasha McElhon, and Ed Harris. A uh, $264 million take on a $60 million budget in uh, those Vaporwave 90s dollars. 
Uh, Zero for three at the Academy Awards. The nominations were director Peter Weir, Peter Weir, original screenplay Andrew Nichol, and supporting actor Ed Harris. So, normally we talk back and forth about these movies. I want you to just go in on Wally so I can say my piece at the end. I don't. Okay, I don't think I. Okay, I already did my thing on Pixar earlier. And I think this film is also very neoliberal, but I think that that's like that's less my problem with it when watching it than the fact that I feel it's it's getting me to feel something, but the way it's doing it feels deeply disingenuous and cynical. Because like, there's the final scene. Everyone's fucking seen Wally. I'm just gonna spoil it. If you want to just watch Wally, it's ever you'll probably like it or whatever. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> but um, uh, like, there's a scene at the end where Wally has forgotten who uh, he is, and Eve holds his hand, and he remembers who he is. And I cried, but I didn't cry because like I felt it earned it. I cried because Wally looks like a sad puppy, and he's been hurt <laughs> a bunch of times. And it's like if you show me footage of like, oh, here we made the CGI puppy, isn't it cute? Here we're just gonna kick it for a little while, and ho- do you do you feel something? I'm like, yeah, I feel sad, but like you didn't do anything. You I mean, just, Wally, you just kicked a puppy. I mean, Wally is kind of like a victim of slapstick for a lot of this movie. Um, like it's a, a lot. Like the first half hour is like slapstick violence. It's like, oh, what's this thing? Oh, I don't know what this is. Oh, boom, I fell on my robo-butt. <laughs> I think... Oh, hold on. I'm just going to make a note. I fell on my robo-butt. That's going to be the title of the show. <laughs> robo-butt. Um, uh, yeah, and also we just kind of like... Yes, uh, here, here's my thing about Wally specifically. We I, I talked about how design and Pixar are really, really interwoven. One is like... It's kind of a symbiotic relationship. Uh, this movie doesn't way, work without the design there. The movie does not work without the design there. I think the design in this film, especially the character design on the robots, is fucking phenomenal. And since these are 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 little are, 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 are little beings that functionally don't really talk or do they a do whole though. Hell- they do they, talk a little bit. They do talk a little bit. And it's like, part of why it's part, like, when they talk, it's really fucking cute. And it's, uh, it's like, it made me angry. It was so cute. It's like, the, the, way, it's the way that Eve says Wally's name and the way that Wally says Eva is. Yeah, sometimes the chips don't quite, because, you know, he's kind of grungy, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the design of the characters ex- is exceptional. And while I do admit that it is kind of shorthand, an emotional shorthand, a visual shorthand, when it's done incredibly well, when a character's design is done incredibly well, like I think they are here, 90% of the job is done. So, and I mean, I'm exactly in the same boat as you, you know? I was like, like, I was, I was moved by these cute robots, except I don't seem to be pissed off about it. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's like, to me, it felt very cynical, is where it comes from. And I think that that, uh, the way the reason I feel that way is not just because of how I feel about Pixar in general. It's also the way the film presents its human characters, which I think is really belittling. The, hu- the human shit is my least favorite shit in this movie. It's very bad. If this movie was just robots, I'd be a lot more kind to it. But the the human stuff is, in my opinion, very bad, and I think very, um, like I said, belittling and obviously fatphobic. But like that's it's a whole other thing like, to get into that. But here, here's my kind of thing with this though, and. It's, it's also, this movie. Sorry, I'll, oh, I'll let ahead. you continue. Like my thing with this rewatching it is that this movie is a lot darker than I remember it being the first couple of times I watched it. Like here, like dig this. Uh, a the worlds of the government, the governments of the world have completely collapsed and have been overtaken by basically Walmart, right? Mm-hmm. And in search, uh, and, uh, you know, in capitalism's, uh, ever ongoing, uh, search for, for greater profits and this, that, and the other thing, uh, have completely fucked up the earth and have basically, basically, uh, done the Elon Musk special and gone out to outer space to try to unfuck the earth. Uh, that didn't happen. And we've been floating out in space for 700 years. So. While I like, I agree with you that the human shit is bad as a symptom of just 
late-stage capitalism run rampant to the point where they've basically toileted the earth. I think that's a good idea, if not the a poor executed execution. in the best way. Kind of a yeah. poor execution. I mean, there's a nugget of something great here, and I think that nugget is strong enough that it allows me to be like, okay, this is like the bad decision the script takes. But the setup and the lead-up is all things It's like, yes, I can understand this. It casts a darker shadow on this film, and also makes the ending a bit more dark than it actually is, because the movie implies some idiocracy shit where not only have we ballooned in size, but we also can't read, we can't read too good either. Yes. So the idea, though, is that, you know, the robots are there to do stuff, and now we live in kind of like a, a robo-human utopia, which, sure, whatever. I mean, I, whatever, it's the ending. But I think there's enough of a good idea there, and you say it's like you say it's cynical. I think it's I think it's very sinister. I don't think it's bad. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess like the only thing I'd have to say in response is that the uh, the way that it it I guess the if our question is so everyone on this ship is cared for. Everyone on the ship has food. Everyone on the ship has shelter. Everyone on the ship um, seems to be relatively happy. Uh, they seem. Uh, I mean, I th- I think like we can we can call about that, but I think like it's it's they seem satisfied. They don't they don't see, they don't seem to be looking living. for more. They're living. Yeah, they are alive. Which like not to be like a bummer, but that's a lot better than like most people in this country right now. Most people in the world. And the question becomes: Okay, so what is the actual? core problem here what is the actual thing that was wrong okay so the actual thing that was wrong is that we destroyed life on earth but life on earth isn't shown to be good for its own sake it's shown to be good for the things it could give people and these are these things that we can no longer get on this ship so it's like we don't have enough pleasure in our perfectly contented lives we need a way to create more pleasure and the only way to do that is going back to earth and i I mean, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, why do I think? Why do you think that it has an intrinsic care? Or like, like does this movie? That's my central question: is does this movie value nature as utility or as inherent good? I think that because the movie does not like can very conveniently for this question, the movie stops as they arrive on Earth, and all those. Weird questions about, do we just run everything right back? Do we just run the, 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 the plundering of the earth for parts back? Or do we make it better? It's kind of like a, like, I, like, I don't know is what I'm trying to say. I'm not sure. Like, I'm obviously bringing my own baggage to this in the same way that you're bringing your baggage to this. Certainly. I, I mean, think to be fair, I'm someone who is like, has read a lot of deep ecology books and has a lot of opinions about environmentalism. So, like, I'm reading a lot of that into this since it's very a, a liberal view of environmentalism, like a very patronizing and conservationist view, in my opinion. But, I mean, I think that given that the world is already, like, it's implied that the ecosystem of the world is fucked up, like, real bad, but not beyond being run back incrementally over a very, very extended amount of time. Now, I want to think that armed with the knowledge that we fucked up big time the first go around, that there would be a more enlightened use of, of, of Mother Earth, as it were, the second time around. But that's me bringing my baggage to this movie. The movie doesn't really talk, talk about that. And if I may, I'm going to quibble with a certain word you use that I think is like indicative of the problem I have with it. The word use sure. there. Like, that the world exists for use. Like, how are we going to use these things instead of how, like, what is the role of humanity in the natural world? Is it separated from it? Is it something to be used and cared for? Or is it something that has intrinsic value in and of itself? Re- I don't regardless know if it can be of both? what? Or is that a cheap answer? Both? I mean, yeah. I think that, I, I think that that turns into, cause then you're, you're basically saying, hey, can't we just have utilitarianism and like, deontological ethics exist in the same moment uh which is not impossible there's certainly people who have tried but i think it's very difficult and i don't think this movie not that i'm asking a lot of a kid's movie to try that but i'm saying that you're asking a lot of me isabel (laughs) i don't know shit about this i'm just running on my gut um i it's like uh 
like let's be frank the fact that i do care a lot about um about this about this topic and that i sure. uh, and that i am personally of the opinion that nature doesn't exist f- isn't good because of its uses it is good because of its inherent goodness and that's why it is worth caring about it as if you care about a person like you care about a human life you should care about the life of the planet but i don't think this film cares about that i think this film is very much in the in the style of the 20s and 30s conservationists which is hey we have to preserve the earth because that's the best thing for humans it's not good for the earth itself it's good because it is good for humans does that make sense this is comfort is is uh not to go off on an ecology uh, tangent, but is uh, this – are there instances of this where it's actively bad for the Earth itself? Um, of conservationism? Yes. Um, yes. Okay. Do we want to get <laughs> into that? Because I'm interested, but we have another whole movie to talk we about. We do. I don't know if – I feel like we this is like this. our like, philosophy podcast where I talk about shit that no one cares about. I mean, I mean, we'll 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 probably have to like put it on the. Uh, we'll probably have to make like a special Patreon episode that will never air because we don't have a Patreon. <laughs> I mean, I, but I, I, here, I'm going to put it in human terms. So, like, I guess like the <laughs> the, the two options are uh, like I'm me, and there's other people, um, which sure. actually I don't even I don't even agree with that. But we're not going to get into that today. Let's oh, just pretend. Lord. Um, so there's other people, and are those other people good because they have inherent worth? Or are they good because they can do things for me and I should protect them because of that? And you might, like with those two outlooks, there might be some actions that look the same, but have different reasons behind them. And there might be some actions that are very different depending on what your outlook is in that situation. And I think that that's the question that this is ultimately riding on. And I think this movie comes around to the opinion, if we were talking about people in the situation, that people are good because I can use them and because they help me. I don't know, dog. I just liked it when the robots held hands. <laughs> no, I did too. I, I will say that I, 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 the robots are very cute. If there's one thing I won't argue with, these robots are fucking cute. And it made me angry, uh, but they are very cute. See, I was – hook, line, and sinker, baby. I was in <laughs> in for the win. Um, but let's talk about, I think, the revelation of this particular set of matchups. Let's talk about the fucking Truman Show. Yeah, a movie that I uh, didn't have high hopes for going in. Turns out this movie is actually secretly fucking rad. It aged real good. It did, and I feel like it's weird. I mean, it's cliche to call a movie prophetic, or like, oh, this sure. movie foresaw certain things. But the fucking Truman Show foresaw some shit that we are still dealing with, and still don't know how we're dealing with. And I think that that is due both to the sharpness of the script and Weir's directing, but also the fact that the script is also open enough that you can get a lot of things out of it. It's a perfect middle brow script. It takes one idea runs with it and leaves a lot of avenues open for interpretation mm-hmm. because that's the kind of shit that gets movie folk and non-movie folk talking. This movie has a long potential tale. Yeah. Like, right. Like even the, like, just like when I first watched it and what I wrote about in my like really quick letterbox capsule was it could be about God and our relationship with God. It could be about reality TV. It could be about moving from being a child to being an adult. It could be about, um, this is my pretentious one, my very pretentious one, um, an explication of like what uh, Metzinger calls the ego tunnel in our way of uh, uh, like perceiving phenomena. It could be about so many things and it's it's specific enough to make those readings interesting, but also vague enough to make all those readings not exclusionary. Two things that we said in the chat that I think are very relevant. Well, okay, first of all, let's set this up. Okay. Uh, the Truman Show, in case you have not heard about this movie, the gimmick of the Truman Show is that it's a reality show about a guy, Truman, played by Jim Carrey, who's just, as far as he knows, is just living his life in like a perfect sort of pseudo 50s, pseudo Stepford Wives community where everyone else is an actor and everything kind of revolves around him. And he gets to be suspicious when he starts to figure out that it may revolve around him a bit too much. Two things that we said in the chat. I said, what if, like, like about this movie, it's like, one, this is a movie about what if God spoke back? And then you said, more than that, what if God spoke and he was wrong? Yeah, um, it, it's actually, I don't know if you know this movie I'm going to reference, but there's a movie from the early 90s, I want to say, with David Duchovny called The Rapture. The Rapture? Or, or just maybe it's just called The Rapture. This. But um, it's about um, some sinners before 
the Christian rapture. And the Christian rapture takes place, and the entire movie is kind of about like, well, was it okay for that to happen? You have here categorical proof that God exists. Okay. What if God was morally wrong? And what if God chose to do things that you think aren't okay? Like, how do you deal with that situation? How do you, knowing that there's an all-powerful being, knowing that you, that it is correct to believe in God, that maybe you don't think he's a cool dude. (laughs) Uh, But if you're Truman, uh, you decide to take shit into your own hands Mm -hmm. uh, and basically give uh, anyone who likes talking about and arguing about free will a giant boner (laughs) and just come everywhere while watching the Truman show. I'm sorry. Uh, we were we were we were down on cum references during the last episode. Yeah, I had to get at least one in. We didn't hit our quota last week, so uh, you're getting there for us. Yes, and if you want to get there by yourself, uh, let's talk about our sponsor, Bad Dragon. <laughs> God, God damn it! That was gotta a- keep the bits alive. Um, <laughs> I don't, now you've thrown me off. You pulled a me, and I don't know where to yeah, go. Yeah, that's right. Um, the Truman Show is. You talked about in the chat about how, like, linearly, this kind of moves like a television show. It's kind of episodic. Truman just kind of goes about his day. Uh, the narrative tension coming from, like, just stuff being weird. Like, the, the, uh, the, uh, inciting incident, as it were, is just a, uh, a light, a light fixture falling from, a studio light fixture falling from the sky. And then, like, on the radio immediately, is like, oh, well, there was, like, a plane crash, and it lost a headlight or something. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, this movie is really good at establishing the rules of the universe. It all feels very intuitive. It all feels very emotional. It doesn't make a lot of linear sense. Like, of course, like, a, a movie about a reality show where the guy didn't know he was on a reality show has the very real risk of being super hackneyed and super corny and not that great but this movie kind of hinges on, like, I-, I weep for what could have been for Jim Carrey in, like, the pre-Vaxxer era. God, yeah. Because, because I, like, like, like most young men uh, born in the late 80s, uh, Jim Carrey was my favorite actor for most of my life. <laughs> and um, this is during his- You just love like, the number 23. I love the number 23. I love uh, I-, I love the one that came out, like, a couple years ago where he plays like an assassin. I think it's a Polish movie. I forget the title of it. Doesn't matter. Um, but uh, this was during his kind of like, I want a fucking Oscar run. The same run that had uh, Man on the Moon in it. And the Majestic. And, and the Majestic. Um, I think he's really good here. Like his, his, his wild man shit is kind of like reined in a little bit. And it comes out a couple times. And he's just, Jim Carrey's just a good actor. He's just straight up as a good actor. Uh, uh, Laura Linney does some like weird shit in this movie. There's a deep, deep supporting bench. Paul Giamatti's in this. He's great in it. Ed Harris is great in it. Totally deserves that Oscar nomination. Um, I don't know where I was going with this. Oh, yes. Emotion. It, it feels – it makes emotional sense as I think what you said. And then I said something along the lines of this is basically if M. Night Shyamalan made seconds. This is an M. Night Shyamalan movie that's not like a horror film or a thriller. Yeah. It's like an existential horror film in that what if you realize that everything around you was just false? What if what if your way out of false consciousness was literally like a wall? Like that just just a wall in the water. What if your false consciousness was as literal as a wall? What the fuck would happen to you? And I, <laughs> I tell you what happened to me, nothing good. And I think that that um this I didn't realize that this was directed by Peter Weir for a while. I don't know why, just like for some reason that never clicked in my head. But watching this, it has its own strange unreality, kind of like Picnic and Hang Rock or The Last Wave, which are great films. And I think it's to the movie's credit that it doesn't become normal ever. <laughs> no, it's 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 like the reason I brought up seconds is because it's shot super weirdly. Like like the like the blocking is like very strange, like over on the far edge of the screen, oftentimes Dutch angles. You can see the shape of the lens a mm-hmm. lot, depending on the camera that they use. It's it's kind of startling that this is a movie that made 
a ton of money because it looks so bizarre. But again, this was like the 19, this is the late 90s. Popular filmmaking looked really weird. I mean, The Matrix was the next year. Yeah. And, and kind of carries very similar like, themes. Yeah, it carries, carries over a lot of the same themes, explored in a completely different way. But I mean, that in this part, in, in the late 90s, we're really into this sort of um, postmodern view on reality in giant quotation marks. Well, I mean, if I if I can get pretentious for a moment, go for it. Um, I feel like the reason that that was there was such a cultural moment in the late '90s, like what is real, like there has to be something outside of what we view as reality. There has to be something more, is because like we're in the era of like Francis Fukuyama's idea of the end of history. Like we've come to the end of it. Communism is defeated. Like representative democracy is the only like capitalist democracy is the only form of existence. We're heavily deep into neoliberalism now. It's officially on the Democratic and Republican side, and people, I think people knew. And this is kind of a similar um, uh, thesis as fighting in the age of loneliness. I think had sure, uh, which is that people know something's wrong, and they know that there's something else out there, but they don't know how to feel it because capitalist realism, as uh, Mark Fisher termed it, has not shown them another way to think about the world that there's this one way to think about it so you know everything's wrong and at that point it becomes just a free-for-all well what is what could that thing be maybe it's a a TV show. maybe maybe i'm actually in a computer simulation just like fucking whatever there has to be something and, and then then you start talking about sort of conspiracy theories and mm-hmm. sort of uh and QAnon bullshit and that's that's how we get here yes certainly and i think that the truman show and the matrix are both perceptive in knowing that that's what people are looking for and people obviously they're 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 not really talking about what's actually wrong they're both fantasy films for sure. lack of a better term but they are talking about the idea that it is I believe wrong. the term you're looking for is science fiction eh is Truman Show really a science fiction show like if you try to explain very, how that fucking very, works very very soft sci-fi yeah very soft but um i think the the truth that both of them get at is that the ways you are taught to perceive your entire life aren't the only ways of perception and that there are potential ways to break through that wall of perception and you need to actively seek them out because they are not going to come to you generally. Yeah, I was really surprised that this movie held up this well. Yeah, th- same. I uh, I expected it to be a totally fine movie, but nothing special. But I was... Uh, it's just good. It's straight up good. Yeah, I watched it a couple days ago and I'm still kind of thinking about scenes from it, still thinking about moments from it. So if you'll allow me to metagame just a little bit. Yes. Like, I think I know where your loyalties lay at in this particular matchup. Okay. I don't want to use a veto for another, like, ten episodes. Okay. Um, so I'm going to use my, uh, my, uh, my well-documented oratory skills to try, okay. to try to tease this one out. While I admit that I, th- that a Truman Show Andre Rublev matchup in the next round would provide very, very fertile ground for a discussion about God and faith and whatever, infinity. I would like the little robot man to move on. My little my little garbage trash boy robot son. Now, my claim, or my, my, my pitch, as uh-huh. it were, for this movie going forward over The Truman Show, is, other than the fact that I just think it's a really good, like, little, a good little science fiction movie, I think in our grand, uh, in our grand bracket may have, like I had mentioned before, the single most effective and uh, and just straight up awesome character design. Although I admit this is more of an animated film thing, I do think that overall uh, the visual vocabulary of the film is worth championing. Now, can I make a counter argument to that? Or are you sorry? Do you still have more to say? No, no, no. You can counter argue. So I think. If Wally moves to the next round, it gets trounced by Andre Rublev. I think whereas, both these. Oh, whereas okay. I think if the Truman Show moves on, if you ask me today which of those moves on, I think the Truman Show moves on over Andre Rublev. Really? Because yes. my thought was, doesn't matter who wins here, Andre Rublev probably moves on. No, I think the Truman Show has it. I think it's punching it the right weight for to move on if it potentially. Because that was my that was my second thing is like I think that. Regardless of who wins in this particular matchup, I think Andre Rublev has. I think Andre Rublev wins. So uh, I was going to appeal to the meaninglessness of this particular matchup, so you could throw, uh, so you could throw old Derek here a bone. I 
I but really... you don't. But you don't even agree okay, to that. Here, can, can I can I metagame farther? Sure. So let's say oh God, let Truman Show and Andre Rublev. <laughs> let's say uh, Truman Show and Andre Rublev move on. Sure. And then let's say Truman Show wins. Now let's. Uh, this is like forecasting pretty far ahead, so I, I don't, I'm not saying any of these things are going to happen. But I'm guessing Perfect Blue is going to beat Godfather Part Two, and I'm guessing Perfect Blue is going to beat whatever wins in the other matchup. So we're I mean, gonna have, the other one so includes hold on. fucking Chinatown. But we're going to have per, we could have Perfect Blue versus the Truman Show. And uh, that is a fascinating matchup. Oh, uh, you're right. Mm, man. And those came out the same year, 1998. No. Was, was Perfect Blue 98? Uh, let me Google. Seven, 97. 98 for 97. audiences. Okay, so they come out relatively at the same time. It's still in this, oh, that's juicy. It's another kind of like examination of like what is real. Yeah, a ce- a celebrity and uh, manufactured image, and oh god damn it! I've been hoisted by my own petard. <laughs> I came in here thinking that I was oh god. I mean, to be but fair, we- you didn't know that I liked Truman Show that much. Whereas, like, I, I like I-, I might move it forward ahead of Andre Rublev. I don't want to like guarantee that, but that is how I would currently lean. Now, if I may meta game even farther, <laughs> okay. Whoever wins in this portion of the Let's bracket, just forecast will f- who's going to win the end of the finals tournament. <laughs> it's two thousand one people. That's what's going to win. But that's probably what's going to win. Um, yeah. But like, whoever wins in that pod will face either Fargo or No Country for Old Men. Oh, looking. Okay, so I'm not sure I agree with either of those results from the next round. Really? Yes. God. Well, I don't know what to think anymore. <laughs> Um, or what I if I wanted to be a real asshole, I could filibuster for ten minutes because I know you got to be somewhere. God, yeah, I have a date, so you basically are like stealing my time from me. <laughs> but I'm not an asshole. Uh, do you want to flip a coin? No, 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 I, no, 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 no. Here's the thing: we agreed, I, we agreed early I'm not on that going this was... to. I'm not going to use a veto, no matter what. We are not like the, flipping coins. This, this matchup is not important enough for me to use a veto. And I am perfectly willing to be angry at Waldy again. <laughs> but now you got me thinking, though. You got me thinking about how interesting Truman Show would be to talk about further down the line. Because, like, I'm not, like, the thing that pisses you off about Wally the most is a thing that I know fuck all about. <laughs> and it would make for shitty podcasting, okay? Truman Show, I could probably punch, I could probably punch my own weight there. And as much as it pains me to see my beautiful grungy robot, uh, uh, robot garbage boy, be defeated in round one, I think for the good of the pod, I'm going to rescind this whole thing and allow the Truman Show to go on. It's a very selfless act, Eric. I'm, I'm uh, very proud of you. I don't feel good about it though. This was well, Jesus felt like. Yes, this is exactly what Jesus felt like. Oh man. On on the on the cross, God showed him a vision of like this podcast, and he was like, "This is what we have to die for." I guess. And now I feel bad for Christ. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so lo- uh, congratulations lo- to the Truman Show. Congratulations to the Truman Show. I do think though that a victory here kind of like accurately re- reflects how fucking surprised we were. Yes, how good I, this I fucking movie was because I think that these two movies are about about the same in terms of quality. Uh, but I was like, I already knew that I liked Wally, and like you, I just thought that maybe oh, Truman Shows could be okay. But no, it was it was really really good. And uh, now we've got Andre Rublev versus uh, the Truman Show to look forward to in round two, which is gonna be a hell of a matchup. Once we get there, before the sun explodes, hopefully. Oh man, billions and billions of years. <laughs> so, uh, but one step at a time, we will get through the first round. Uh, our next matchups, as hinted at. For the next episode will be, uh, yes, we, this is the first one of, uh, of my ringers, of my wildcard movies in the bracket. We have Godfather 2 versus Perfect Blue and The Great Escape versus Chinatown. So that's going to be a whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm genuinely excited to finally have an excuse to watch Chinatown because it's one of those movies I was like, I should watch that since I was like 17 and it's never watched. So. I mean, I think you got a pretty good reason to like put off watching Chinatown. It's long. It's called Roman oh, Polanski. Oh yes, 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 yes. Uh, 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 writer, director, and co-star in this thing. I think. No, it's not a writer. Uh, Robert Town wrote this, right? 
I don't fucking know anything about Chinatown. Uh, here's what I know about Ch- Chinatown is that uh, it's referenced Robert heavily Town. in the uh, film Los Angeles Plays Itself. Also in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a fucking great movie. Which is, which is also referenced heavily in Los Angeles Plays Itself. Let's just watch Los Angeles Plays Itself. Plays itself I, mean, I, I mean, that movie's been on my watch list for like ages, like ever since I had a watch list. Um, but uh, now's not the time to worry about watch lists past. Now is the time to do a little bit of a, of a back-end matter, uh, sponsored <laughs> by Bat Dragon. Um, so if you like any of this, uh, you can get in touch with us and say so. Uh, you can drop us a line. Or at, if you don't uh, like any of this. Or if you don't like any of this, if you think it's dog shit, whatever, tell us. I mean, engagement is engagement. Uh, you can email us at middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Derek underscore G. And Isabel is at Space Jam Fan. Uh, you can uh, get in our comments on Letterboxd and tell us that our writing sucks. Uh, I'm at Derek underscore G there. And Isabel is at The Trap's Jaw altogether. Um, you can also rate us five stars on iTunes. Uh, you know, it helps. We are we are so small that it does help, literally. Yes. Because we are tiny. So that little that little five stars, or whatever, I mean, rate what you want. I'm not your fucking mother, but you know, give us a little rating, give us a little review. Um don't forget we are still taking what is it? Uh, uh recipes, vegan preferable, yeah. and other shit. Just send us some fun stuff in the inbox, middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. Um and if you're and, tired uh, of we hearing are- about it, well, then just send us stuff so that way we won't have to talk about it so much. Make this yes. podcast less sad. Make this podcast less sad. Um, we are also part of the uh, Noise Space uh, Podcast Network, along with a bunch of other shows uh, that you may or may not know of. Uh, you should go and listen to every one of them. Just like after you've listened to every episode of Mel Brown Madness, go and listen to every episode of every other podcast on the Noise Space uh, network, you can visit the website at noisespace.xyz. I think that's everything. I think so. All right. So you get, uh, so you, uh, you got to do the thing. Oh, uh, do I do? Is it? Uh, I've been Isabel Arf. Yes. And I've been Derek Gade. Have movies, be jolly. Have movies, be jolly. Good nights to Good. one and all. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs>